Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more podcasting greatness on all platforms where good podcasts are sold, and with video also here on YouTube. Hey, everybody. You can see this week I have finally gotten back together with John A. Tech. Hey, John. Welcome back to the show. My pleasure. And uh, to my viewers as well, I'm John A. Tech, and, and here's my guest, Chris Shelton, and I'm his guest, too, at the same time. <laughs> Boom. <you> parallel. <laughs> it, it's been... It, this is the longest pause we've had in in quite some time. We usually get together every month or two. And yeah, yeah, um, COVID. I think I think for me the university tr- study has been the biggest <sighs> to my schedule. It has really thrown everything for a loop. And now Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are pretty much um, Thursday. You know, are getting my critical clips done on Monday first thing for the week, and then I'm into the university world and studying stuff and. I was showing, you can see for us on video, this is just some of the paperwork connected with the uh, stuff I got to read. A typical <laughs> one hour piece of work there. That's right. That's right. So, um, so this has really kind of thrown everything for a loop for me, and I've been adjusting and readjusting, and I think that is probably more of the cause of agent than anything else to our schedule disparities. <laughs> Yeah. You can see I'm even talking academically now. It's awful. Schedule disparities. <laughs> but it's been fun. And, and I have missed talking to you, so I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's always been a, a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, and you were proposing the idea of, um, you know, we, we're doing what we can about what I call authoritarianism, um, coercive control in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, will we... Will we ever be able to overcome this problem? Yeah. Uh, to, what, to what extent might we be able to overcome it? Um, exactly. Or are we just going to be struggling and swimming against the tide for the rest of our lives? And I speak as somebody who's now spent 37 years swimming against the tide. Yeah, well, I hear you. I'm coming up on, um, Jesus, what is this, seven, eight years now that I've been yeah. out? Um, I mean, that's, you know, it, it, it's funny how... The, the curve of this, because when I first got out, I was speaking out right away, right? Because I'm a big mouth. I, that's what I do. I can't not talk. I have been this way. This is not a Scientology thing. I have been this way since I was a rug rat. I was the kid who got his mouth taped in school because I wouldn't stop talking in class. I was the guy whose who's notes from the teacher always said, well, Chris is very bright. I literally have this. Chris is very bright, but he really has a hard time controlling his, you know, his mouth. Motor right? mouth. Yes, yeah. motor mouth. That's right. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by that. That is a lifelong trait that I have had. And so I hit the ground running when I got out of Scientology and, and started going. And a lot of people thought, wow, he really got over this quickly. He really, you know, is speaking out so fast and this is so amazing and it's so, and I was speaking fluently and and and, and coherently and, and I wasn't screaming and crying and ripping, you know, chewing the rug. And so I think a lot of people thought that I made a lot more progress in this thing we call recovery, <laughs> you know, that I actually had. And fortunately, I didn't buy into that too much after the first year, after I really got my head around 
how this was going to take a long time, and there was a lot to undig, to dig up and and look up and look at with this because I'd been in Scientology for so many years, you know. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is that I brought up this idea today for us to talk about because I have been studying this for now for, you know, eight, nine years, I guess, right? Eight, seven, eight years. And um, now I'm attending university. I'm going for a master's degree in this in this topic of coercive control and psychology. I've now dived into books and and papers uh, on on psychology and psychiatry and where we're at with this stuff. Um, the way we're studying it, we're also bringing in legal and you know the law and how the law has responded to this stuff. Um, we're covering domestic violence, we're covering gangs, we're covering terrorism as well as cults. So we're getting a very well-rounded look at this behavior. And what it got me thinking about is that, well, actually what I've been saying for some time, which is that, you know, cults, cult leaders, charismatic leaders, people who engage in coercive control are really manipulating very basic parts of your psychology, our psychology, that are there regardless. They're not creating something new in us, in other words. It isn't a peculiar phenomena of psychology that causes someone to engage in coercive control or be at the receiving end of coercive control and, and do bad things. That, that what, what's happening is we are leveraging basic cognitive processes and rational mechanisms that we've developed over the centuries, like cognitive dissonance, <laughs> and we're leveraging this against people and, make, and manipulating them in ways that cause them to act certain ways as, as prescribed by the cult leader or the terrorist cult, you know, cell leader or the narcissistic uh, partner in the domestic uh, violent sphere. So where this where this sent me was thinking, well, wait a minute, if that's the case, if that's the premise that I'm going on, and so far that's what I believe it to be true, is there such a thing as a cure for cultism, right? Or for coercive control? That all being said, what's your initial take on this, John? Well, um, the, yeah, we're dealing with human behavior. Um, it's important to know that not every human society has behaved in the same way. And um, curiously, the last conversation we had, um, you said you were going to have to find a PhD in history. Yes, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it's, it's, not being a PhD, of course, you can't believe me. <laughs> but um, the, and I'd suggested, you know, had there ever been a time when people had lived at peace? And I said, yes, the Indus Valley civilization for 700 years. Mm -hmm. um, there is no evidence of warfare. They don't have weapons of war. They also don't have any temples and they don't have any palaces in that mm -hmm. period. So they seem to have had an egalitarian society. And that, I think, would be the point of it. Didn't we talk about the size of the population having something to do with that, too? Well, possibly, but it was quite a large, it, it's up on the borders of you know, Northwest India on the border of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, Northwest part of the Indian subcontinent, most of it's in, in Pakistan. Um, the, 
that it flourished and, and that there were quite a lot of people involved here. Okay. And they did have defense works along their southern border. So that somebody had tried to mess with them at some point. Mm -hmm. But it was just the, the thought that if it has happened, if people have been able to live this way, then it can happen. If we look then to the Kogi, uh, K-O-G-I people in Colombia, when the conquistador came in the 17th century, they fled up their mountain. And they've been living there ever since, um, losing more territory. And a BBC crew eventually got in there and they sat for three years. They went back every year to try and get in and talk to these astonishing people. And they found a society that, that had been just kept itself apart. Um, there are parts of the mountain that were actually irrigation channels and things that were built by the Kogi before the Conquistador and the Conquistador were coming in in the 16th and 17th century. Um, and these still work. There are still gardens that have maintained themselves almost because of the way they were established by these people. So these people are quite remarkable. Um, are we and we're referring here to the Kogi people, K-O-G-I. Is that right? Yeah. And this is uh, just quickly looking them up for for the audience. The the word Kogi means jaguar in the Kogi language. I, maybe I'm saying Kogi wrong, but I'm just K-O-G-I. Yeah, and they are an indigenous ethnic group that live in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta Mountains in northern Colombia. Yeah. Their civilization has continued since the pre-Columbian era. So yeah, flourished. They were descendants. The Kogi are descendants of the Torona culture, which flourished before the times of the Spanish conquest. Advanced civilization built many stone structures and pathways in the jungles. Made gold objects that they would hang from the trees and around their necks. Lived not much differently than modern day Kogi. Um, before the conquistadors arrived, the Torona were forced to move into the highlands, exactly like you said, around 1000 CE. Yeah. And uh, the decision to flee to the mountains proved beneficial and strategic by the time the Spanish entered modern day Colombia in the 15th century. So mm. that's interesting. Then the missionaries came, um, began to influence I, their way of life. These, I, I think that's wrong. It's the 16th century, not the 15th. Oh, yeah. Citation um, needed. It could be wrong. Well, 1492. Yeah. Columbus yeah. arrives yeah. in Cuba, so they aren't in, they aren't going into Colombia in the 15th century. Right. They've only got eight years left of the 15th century after Columbus lands. So yeah. I, I think it's yeah. 16th century. But you know, I'm being pedantic here. I know. No, but, no, um, I was um, I was just curious about what else there could be to glean on this really fast because we're of course looking for why are they not like the rest of us, you know. I mean, let me say that, that their history, their, you know, when the BBC people talked with them, they, they actually can, they talk about having dogs set on them by the conquistador, which was a typical method that they, they'd have killer dogs mm -hmm. that would go and rip people to pieces because they weren't Christians, so they didn't deserve to live. You know, that's the way it works. But what's fascinating in this society and what, what I hold on to is, is that it is... Um, they have managed to create a society that appears to have almost no crime. Yeah, it is interesting looking through the lifestyle here. This is a this is a civilization that has a simple mode of dress, cotton weaving, etc. 
They live in villages uh, containing circular huts made of stone, mud, and palm leaves. Men live in a separate hut from the women and children. Always a good idea. It, you know, it might not Snoring. be. Snoring. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, each village contains a large hut uh, called a Nuhu or temple where only men are allowed. In the Nuhu, many things are discussed and decisions are made. Uh, women are not allowed because the Kogi believe that women are more connected to the Great Mother and mm-hmm. have no need of entering the temple. There are wi- also women priests in the villages. Okay, so this isn't the men dominate through religious belief. Okay, not at all. In What's fact, more, the leaders are called mamas. Well, yeah, all, cons- all consultations are done with mamos. M-A-M-O-S. And, you are, in fact, men. <laughs> and many of the decisions are based on their wisdom and knowledge. Many Kogi marriages are arranged by Mamoas to ensure the most fruitful communities. However, marriages are not forced, and the buying and selling of women is not permitted. Although women oh, well, as, I'm against it then. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, these guys are clearly off the rails. Although women as young as 14 can be married and have children. The Kogi, same true in Louisiana, I believe. I, basically. The, the Kogi do not allow the mistreatment of women. And it is no, not they're uh, very strong about that. That's apparently you're not, so. to, you're not allowed to shout at women. Interesting. Let alone hit Interesting. And mm. it's not uncommon to find marriages that were not arranged, but the Kogi also disapprove of breaking arranged marriages. Fields house now now this is now I'm just I'm just reading some of this to give an idea of the flavor of what are they doing differently. Because sometimes you can be well, surprised. I can tell you what they're doing differently without going to Wikipedia, if you like. Well, but I just think we that can also is... have everybody read out. Because I'm going to mention 17 other cultures. Are you going to no? Do this but I just one? wanted just to look up. To I, you know, I get to look up what I want to look up, and it says here that this is a fascinating business here, which is bilateral inheritance. Do you know about that? Because this is interesting. I don't know about bilateral inheritance. Well, see, Wikipedia can teach you something too, John. I'm not saying it can't <laughs> teach you something. I'm, I'm saying that, that we might, it might get a bit complicated because I also want to talk about the sun, the barca, and the weechol. And it's just to say why these, you know. Right. I don't well, think that that's going to tell us the fundamental it, reasons as to why this society differs from ours. And I can tell you that because I have read about these things. Fair enough. Much as well, I respect the authors of Wikipedia, except when they're writing about cult groups and, yeah, and modern exactly. events, where they seem to be completely useless, frankly. My biography on Wikipedia, you, you know, I am the centre of the UK movement against Scientology, according to Wikipedia. Fair I enough. haven't been active in the counter-cult movement since 1996, you know, but Gordon Melton says I am. So the, the point is that there are a variety of societies, the San in the Kalahari or another, where they don't seem to have these murderous instincts, the Ba'aka Pygmy. They don't seem to do this. Come on, quick, quick, read us all the Wikipedia entries. The Huichol in central Mexico. And it's saying that, therefore, the nature of culture is absolutely essential. This is the only point I'm trying to make here. I'm mm-hmm. not really trying to belittle and humiliate you. Um, the, the central point is that different cultures act in different ways. There was a, a study that, that could never be repeated that was done in, in, with Amazon cultures long ago. I don't remember the details of it, but it's not the sort of thing you could repeat. Some sociologists or anthropologists had found, probably in the 1930s or something, that they, they'd found this one village that was really peaceful. 
and everybody was really nice all the time. And then 100 miles away, they'd found this village where the people were really horrible. And they swapped some people between mm-hmm. villages. Not the kind of thing that an ethical review board would permit these days, mm-hmm. thankfully. And they found that the people took on the characteristic characteristics of the society into which they were put. So Sapolsky talks about similar things being done with um, baboon or certain ape troops or chimp troops. Yeah. Right. They would they would do that. uh, Eugene Marais's the original work that was done with baboons in in uh, South America, The Soul of, of the Ape which is one of the great books, The Soul of the White Ant and The Soul of the Ape, the first two books of um, investigative um, um, animal biology. Um, yes, you'll find that, that there are cultural effects. This is vital in, in our subject, that authoritarianism, in, in studying psychopaths, Kent Keel spent, you know, he, he's done fine grade fMRI scans, um, functional magnetic resonance imaging scans on more than 500 people and reports this in a book called The Psychopath Whisperer. And what he found was that criminal psychopaths in prison, and nobody volunteered outside of prison to, to to, to have an fMRI for some reason. But so he had to do them. He had to have a mobile one and he went all over the place uh, in Canada, and I think in North America. And he assayed more than 500 people and he found that they were all deficient in the connection between the limbic system, the old brain and the frontal cortex, the thinking brain. So we like to think just they were all of them, every one of them. Yeah. less connective tissue between the reactive, instant, violent, aggressive part, animal, you know, crocodile part of the brain, and the human, the part of the brain that's unique to humans. Mm. Uh, and so he showed that there was a genetic basis for this. Mm. And it's very hard to argue against. Having said that, the deficit um, averages out to about 7%. So it's not, you know, that they're, it's not a huge thing, but it's there. You then have three genetic alleles that are associated with the psychopathic disorder. And by the psychopathic disorder, I now take um, Robert Hare's extreme definition, which is these are the criminal psychopaths, not the sociopaths who he puts lower down, not the narcissists, but the violent, unpleasant, horrible people. In st- so in studying them, there is the moment some pretty good evidence that what we're dealing with is physiological. However, the Mendota study, where they took a lot of adolescents who had the callison unemotional disorder, which is what you, until you're 18, that's what it's called. On your 18th birthday, hey, you've become a psychopath. Um, You can't diagnose people under the age of 18 because we don't want to label them. So we just give them a different label and, and pretend that we don't know what we're doing. They took two groups, sizable groups, control group, I think, committed 17 murders after being released. And the group that had received treatment and help committed no murders. And this broke this notion that we've had that there's nothing you can do with people who are born with this disorder. What appears to be the case is that if they are treated with respect, 
if they are not brutalized as they are in prisons to this day, then there is a chance that their behavior will come better. We also know with the psychopathic disorder that as people get older, and certainly when they reach the age of about 50, so getting there, um, this behavior tends to decline. Mm. So we, we've got some science around here. If we then go to the notion of coercive control, uh, as, as I say, I like to, to, to focus on authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I've just done this fantastic seminar for Russia. I was just really excited about it. It's a, a, a teacher's training course. It's going to be going out next week. But it meant I got to talk with my good friend, Alexander Dvorkin. Mm. And he said, well, but I, I call these groups totalitarian. Why do you call them authoritarian? And I said, well, you know, I've been calling them totalitarian and totalist, same thing, for a long time. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a common way of describing them, but it's not actually my experience. I'm not against total authoritarianism or totalitarianism. It's a word that was pressed together to mean that. I think first talking about Mussolini in the 30s. Uh, I'm not just against totalitarianism. I'm against authoritarianism. So even if it's the mild form where you've got somebody who believes that they should be in charge, and that's an authoritarian leader, and you've got somebody who believes that somebody should be in charge of them, and that's an authoritarian follower, I'm against all of that. I'm mm. against, I would like to see a society in which people make choices together, in which there is a consensus among people, um, in which we make progress forward by talking about things, by thinking about them, by analyzing them, by considering the evidence. I understand at the moment, there's this funny number and it keeps coming up. Schopenhauer, the philosopher, and I, I can now say I've actually read some Schopenhauer. I've read about 20 pages of it. Um, he, he wrote this great book about how to be happy, which starts out by saying, I've explained that human beings are miserable. And now I'm going to... But it, he put forward the point of view that about 60% of people can't think. That they're not able to make decisions. Eric Fromm, writing 100 years later, came to a very similar conclusion. He said they have a pseudo-self. All they're doing is trying to be, not to be criticized for the way they behave, trying to have the right kind of automobile and the right kind of house and scrub their children and have their hair cut the proper way and fit in, conform. So they don't actually develop a self. You then look to Milgram in the early 60s and he comes up with this 60% again. He says that 60% of people in the first 62 and a half percent, I think it was, in the first study where they're asked to shock people, they'll go all the way to the triple X on the machine. I mean, sadly, 100% were willing to shock people. And we are told that those conformity numbers are coming down slightly. Well, it's a, well, I have to be super, super clear because this is something I have mm -hmm. looked into a bit. And it really depends on Milgram as to how the study is conducted and where. Because you will I'm find... talking about the first Milgram study. He conducted seven. Oh, the first one. Okay, got it. Because it, the replication is is also part of the process. And and the replication of this has shown varied results around the world. And um, for example, if you're uh, an engineer, almost anywhere, you're not likely to fall into those percentages. If you are a Japanese male, you are likely to not be a conformist in the same percentages. So there are there are um, 
you know, differences I'm, I'm here. It's not a universal thing. Right. The question, both those statements, those are conformity studies. They're not repetition, replications of Milgram. I'm not aware of Japanese replication of Milgram. The engineer study is a Solomon Ash study on the conformity. Oh, I'm sorry. I was confusing that with Ash. My bad. Yeah. My bad. My bad. Confused yeah. so, Ash and Milgram. My bad. Yeah. But, but we're talking about the same thing. So, so the point you're making, I agree with. Yeah. But it, the first thing is just to establish this peculiar number. This sixty percent mm. that just keeps on coming up. Mm. Uh, Jane McGregor, who published a book about ten years ago about um, what she calls the sociopath empath apath triad, mm -hmm. she's a professor at Nottingham University, and her idea is that sociopaths, which would include psychopaths and whatever, find apaths who are people who can be manipulated emotionally to attack mm -hmm. empaths. And she reckons that 60% of people are APAS. So I'm fascinated by this number. Well, but I am too, but I am cautiously reserved about that number because until I can see the methodology of how these things were, were done. I'm not saying this is a truth, yeah. Chris. Okay, Let me go to the next point. The next point is to say that if that is a, a number that's of use to us, mm -hmm. then it says if we could change that number, and I believe, you know, that's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. the, the evidence in conformity studies, though, I must say that the, the ethics committee, committees have made it impossible, and, and quite rightly so, mm -hmm. to check most of these studies yep. anymore. We can't do Zimbardo anymore. That's right. Um, got the BBC prison experiment, which I think is massively, it's quoted so often as disproving Zimbardo. And you look at it and you say, but they, they, sorted, they sorted out anybody before they did the study who might not be empathetic. And even so, by the end of it, they were bullying the other people. So the, these studies, we have, to, we have to approach them with tremendous caution. They should never be seen in the same way as uh, experiments in chemistry, physics, and biology, because yep. they are not. They, and they are, as you say, culturally dependent, gender dependent. Geographically but, dependent. I mean, it really, all these factors matter tremendously. And you can look at Sapolsky if you have questions, big, huge, wide questions as to as to how this works, because he, he breaks it down in his Stanford lectures on this. Yeah. And I think the important thing is that there is such variation, which mm -hmm. is why they talk about the Weechol and the Coggy and, and what have you, yep. indicating that we can culturally change these things. So the answer to the, the question, your initial question is, yes, I believe that a change can be made. The next question is how. Right. But I, and know, that's the thing I've been, okay, cool. Well, that's the thing I've been wondering about because my thought on this, I mean, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna go so far as to say I have a whole logically thought out premise other than kind of, but, but, but I do wanna reiterate that, um, Well, let me ask you this. What sort of things do you see or are you finding in your survey of these cultures or these areas or these territories or populations? What are you seeing as the common denominators and or um, is it something with the group itself that is causing that behavior or is it something external to the group that has caused that that's brought about that behavior? Like what what are you seeing as causative agents here? I think um, 
you know, the broad sort of sway of history shows us um, that you, I, as you know, I focused down, you know, five years ago, I published a book called Opening Minds, and we're just about to um, publish an updated edition of it, uh, which is going to be called Opening Our Minds, because I'd like mine to be open too. Um, but, you know, just to say that, but I, as I focused on the problem, you know, you know that I left Scientology, I spent years creating the history of science, first and still only history of Scientology, the first attempt at it, Janet Reitman borrowed and copied it, but that doesn't make her a historian. And Chris Owen and Tony Ortega, uh, and you in your own work are extending that history most definitely and in, in, in wonderful ways. Um, but having got through the history of Scientology worked, you know, that book, that Sully's People of Peace of Blue Sky was the basis for Russell Miller's Barefaced Messiah. It's the manuscript he worked from, and I was his researcher from the day he signed the contract to um, being his expert witness in court. And I, indeed, I believe it's true that I'm the only person who's ever been appointed an expert witness on the subject of Scientology by a court. Mm. Um, there are people with more general expertise, but apparently I'm an expert on Scientology and have been since 1987. But that, of course, you know, finding the, the biography of Hubbard, the thing of Scientology, of course, you come to this thing like, oh, how did this happen? Uh, how was I taken in? How are people taken in? Um, how did I believe such crazy nonsense? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's so embarrassing. What's the worst thing you can say about me? He used to believe in Scientologists. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm it's never used against get me all that. the time. I get it. <laughs> yeah. But that took me into, hey, other cults. And I read mm -hmm. about cults, ancient and modern. I got back to the Eleusinian mysteries of 1200 BC, which give us the word mystery. Um, and you know, versions of which, Scientology is a version of it, they, they have levels of initiation where you apparently become more a member of the electoi or the elite, as the Gnostics called them. And you know, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, all of these groups that have these this idea that you're achieving some wonderful powers and knowledge, which is just a labyrinth of deception. It's just a, it's a, it's what uh, Wittgenstein called a language trap. You know that you've convinced yourself that these things are happening, and they aren't. You know that's exactly. just you know, wake up, grow up, and get over it. I started in the nineties, the early nineties, having gone through everything I could read about mind control. You know, William Sargent's Battle for the Mind, his Mind Possessed, and his other book, and you know Steve Hassan's Combating Cult Mind Control. I talked with whoever I could talk with, and. Just said about putting this, you know, it seemed to me that the process had frequently been described. You know, I remember one day, I was in, it was about six in the morning, which is a bad time for me because that's two hours after I'd normally fall asleep. So I'm, I'm still awake or I've you know, had an hour's sleep. And I was doing an intervention, uh, I did two with Hannah and Jerry Whitfield back in 1991. And uh, I was sat there in this, this hotel. I'm going, why am I doing this stuff? all of this stuff about mind control, nobody's paying any. And suddenly a thought floated through. At that time, I considered myself still to be a Buddhist. I still pursued enlightenment. And it suddenly hit me that what the Buddha was trying to teach people was exactly this, mind control. 
why it is that we're susceptible to the control of other people. And the liberation, the great moksha, the satori, samadhi, the enlightenment, would be the moment where all of that intellectual machinery, that you know, the superego, the control from your culture, the genetic id part of what was going on in you, you would suddenly, you know, it would all come into focus. And I realized that the topic was the same. Since then, I've stopped believing in enlightenment, which makes it a bit more complicated. But I did realize, therefore, that the texts of the mystics, Christian, Jewish, Sufi, they're all about this. They're all about freedom of mind. They're all about not thinking about it in the way that everybody else thinks about it. And of course, as they say in Buddhism, ultimately, you have to lose the desire to become Buddha you know, mm. in losing desire. Um, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him is one of the side statements of Zen Buddhism. The Buddha himself didn't offer this. Mm. Um, but I realize, and they, each one of them becomes a trap. Within a generation, mm -hmm. any one of these methods, mm -hmm. so if you look, for example, my favorite example is the great poet Rumi, Mavlavi, who is, I believe, still the biggest selling poet in the United States, even though he was a Muslim. Imagine that, mm. given all the anti-Muslim fervor over there. Um, brilliant, brilliant poet, uh, who 13th century, um, born in what is now Turkey, Anatolia, wrote largely in Farsi. Only about 10% of his work has been um, translated. I regard him as, it's like, he's the Shakespeare of, of Iran. He's this, but where Shakespeare was a miserable bugger, you know, let's be honest about it. To be or not to be, oh, I don't know. But absolutely brilliant and penetrative in his thinking. Mm -hmm. Rumi's the, the other end of the temperament. He's actually perfectly happy. And he puts forward the, this idea that um, we are actually living within uh, a perfect world. We are actually here right now, and we can have this perfect life um, because of the construction in which, you know, the construction that we have made around ourselves, how we believe and what we believe. Mm -hmm. He shows something of the, um, the nature of belief itself. And again, we find in his work and we find in the work of, we can find it in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, we are the construction of our own thoughts, that the echoes of these thoughts go through all human culture. That's all, all that I'm really saying. Mm -hmm. In modern times, Western psychology believes it has discovered something. Whereas, in fact, there are, as some people say, only five ways of looking at the world. Mm. And they are the five forms of Greek philosophy, Aristotelian, Platonic, uh, Cynical, Epicurean, and Stoic. Mm. And your temperament would determine how you look at them. What we need to do is to shift ideas. So if I look back to the Victorian period, uh, the 19th century, four-year-old children were being sent up chimneys to clean them. And if they got stuck, they were left there to die. Wow, I didn't know that. Four-year-old children were being sent down the mines to work as pit ponies. It happened in the US. It happened throughout Europe. What we have seen, and 
this becomes important, I think, what we have seen is an incredible cultural change. We don't accept that anymore. Right. We as a culture, we don't accept the idea that you can sell an eight-year-old girl for a bottle of gin. That is correct. I think that movement is the movement against authoritarianism. It's the movement against the tribal chieftains, the psychopathic leaders, the warlords who have governed so many human societies. So I think by understanding the problems of authoritarianism by just by labeling it's taken me all of these years to just and i know my friend christian sherko or stephen hassan we've all come to this same word authoritarian mm -hmm. that this is what jessica turville we're all kind of going yeah it's that belief system it's that thing oh i need to be led rather than i can be part of the process of decision but and isn't but but my quandary my real quandary with this and the, and the thing that the, the, the genesis of, of this discussion was the thought process in my head of, yeah, but that's how we innately, okay, innately, genetically, uh, instinctively, like naturally, organically, doesn't it seem that from the way we structure our societies, the way we structure any company, any group, almost any activity that we get involved in, is built on a socially a, a hierarchical model it's not egalitarian it's it's there's a model of authority and it's mm -mm. built into us these are no. the things i call well let me let me finish no. with this because because if you watch now now i'm not trying to make like you know academic level claims here i'm talking out of my experience and and knowledge <laughs> But if you observe children, you know, you can certainly find lots of examples, and I certainly can from my own experience growing up and watching other people, that there is this tendency, as you we talked, as you've broken down so brilliantly already in terms of, you know, there's a 60% or 40% or whatever, there's a percent of people who are going to be followers, you know, who we might call you know, actually, I don't want to use this word, but who other people might call sheeple, you know, people who just do what they're told. And it does seem to be, for lack of a better way of understanding it right now, and I really feel hampered by our current, you know, where we're at in our level of advancement of, of our ability to look in the brains and, and look at look at how things happen and the relationship, the mathematical modeling of the of this is extremely not figured out yet. So we're yeah, so we're absolutely. a long way from from peering into the brains of people. And you know, when you talk about fMRIs and stuff, I go, okay, but I want to know all about what questions were asked, what what was the situation they were put in, you know, because fMRI is a functional picture of a brain doing a specific thing. So I'd be very interested in what they were told what they were told to do when those results came out of this difference between you know the sociopaths or psychopaths versus the other people but regardless of that i'm just really commenting there on the infancy of our technology with this and the unreliability of it yeah i agree i feel though that there seems to be things that i call for lack of a for just a way of communicating about it things we don't have to think about we just do them. You don't have to think about sleeping. Nobody has to tell you to sleep. 
you just do it. Nobody has to tell. No, I always have to tell my children. They yeah, but they'll eventually do it, won't they? I mean, it just happens, right? I hope same, so. Same with eating. Same with recreating. I mean, these are three of the most basic things going on all of life. Any life, that's those things are going on. They're things you don't have to think about because they're not learned behavior. They're not cultural behavior. Eating, sleeping, screwing. These are things that are going to happen universally. And no one has to think about whether they should have an impulse to eat or an impulse to sleep or an impulse to screw. It's there. Hmm. Now, but it's going to be there. I hesita- hesitate on the third one there, that there are people who don't have the impulse to screw. I get that. that I, I was about to say that I get that there is a spectrum here and that some but people could have been wrong. Some people, like, are all out on eating. Other people, not so much. You do have to eat and you do have to sleep. You do. You don't do those things, you'll die. If you don't screw, you You might. won't die, but the species itself has this impulse built into it. And statistically... It's a different level of drive, and I think it's important to differentiate it. Fair enough. Different level of drive. Fair enough. I do believe, though, that the recreative impulse... Statistically speaking, broadly now, I mean, you can, there is no statement you or I can make that we can't find some exception to. So I'm not trying to argue no, through course, 100% no, 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 applicability. That's right? not true. That's not true. That this is based upon the myth that the exception proves the rule. Which well, is that's what mis- I was just trying to argue against. No, no, which is a mis- mistranslation of the Latin. Provare doesn't mean um, to prove, it means to test. The exception tests the rule as the Latin statement, which is coming to popular thought. Of course, you can say if you're a breatharian and you don't eat anything, you will die. That is, there's no human being that's not true of. So you can make statements of an absolute nature. Fair enough. I, I, I am trying to simply say, look, it doesn't just because you can find some guy who doesn't sleep doesn't mean it that. That, that no, what there, I'm saying there is, is no wrong, such thing as some you know? guy who doesn't sleep. Well, I, I, there are people who claim that, but yeah, that, no. But everyone that's been tested, it's been found they micro sleep. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, there, there is no single case, and what's more, they're very badly ill. Yeah, I'll bet they are. Well, so the direction I'm trying have to go a, in a condition here. called familial yeah. insomnia, which kills people who have it. It runs in families, wow. and they lose the ability to sleep, and it kills them. Wow, rats. Course, you take sleep away, it kills them. Yeah, so, okay, fair enough. Well, all I'm really trying to go in is somebody on the head with a very big hammer will always squash their head. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> there enough. are things that, that we can say are palpable. Okay, well, um, all I'm trying to negate there is okay, look, I say something, and well, here's an exception, so you're wrong. Well, I, I, that's not that's not. It's not how I'm trying to talk right now. I'm just trying to say that there are th- – I'm trying to explain myself, and I'm trying to say that there is a, 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 a way of looking at our behavior and the causative elements of our behavior. Why are we doing what we do? Well, some of it is just instinctive, or it's just we don't have to think about it. We just do it. Um, I believe – that from my from from what I've studied so far in all these years that and, and I'm and I'm happy that's why I'm discussing it with you because I'm happy to have my mind changed about this but I'm bringing this up because it seems to me that the forming of social hierarchies in any group situation is one of these things we don't have to think about it just happens 
No one person has to make it happen in order for it to happen that a bunch of people will look to another person just naturally and go, you know, here's the guy who needs to lead us, who needs to tell us what to do. I don't know what to do, but I'm more than happy to listen to this guy tell me what to do. And we seem to have a statistical variation of some kind where a certain percentage of us have that inclination, whereas another percentage of us seem to have this, I want to be the leader guy. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the leader guy, right? I could follow, but I actually want to lead. But there are two different kinds of leaders. And there are. That's right. There's, the, there's, a, there's a leader who is leading in a constructive path with, a limited, with an understanding that this is a limited authority to do certain things, accomplish goals or purposes that are constructive and positive for the group, and then they're done, right? This is the, I mean, Rome talked, you know, they had guys who would take charge during times of war, I think, and, and lead the troops and then go back and give up the authority. I read about Solon, that. I don't know if that's true. Solon, but. Solon the Archon in, in the Athenian society in 600 mm. BC is brought in and told to sort the society out, does so and leaves. There, yeah. there are many examples. I'm not think that's not the differentiation I'm making. The two kinds of leaders, I would use Eric Fromm's term, they are life affirming or life denying. Those are the two kinds of Fair leaders. Enough. It's not whether they take a permanent position or not. That doesn't concern me. No, no, I, I get that. I was talking about the, you know, practically how it works out. But, but it seems that what Fromm is discussing or what we are discussing here, what, what we're trying to sort of categorize or, or figure out here is these are things that we do that we don't have to think about. You don't have to teach a person to be a follower, be a leader. I mean, you should. I mean, obviously, Ira Shalev's work is, is brilliant. But I mean, what I'm saying is that you naturally, without thinking in any way, little children will do this. They will just line up, you know, in certain categories. And, and the cate what the categories are doesn't even matter. It's not my point. The fact that there are categories is my point, is that people will do this. I, and, I disagree. Okay. So why? The, the first point is that there are non-hierarchical societies. Um, the San of the Kalahari and the Baaka Pygmy do not have tribal chieftains. Mm -hmm. They don't have bosses. Mm -hmm. They, When they do a particular activity among the Baaka, they're very fond of honey, but the, the honey they like is like 80 feet up in the trees. So when they go to get that honey, they the person who's best at climbing trees is in charge of them, okay. but only for that period. Um, some of the, the Plains Indians and, and indeed some of the um, East Coast uh, Indians, what a horrible word, Native Americans, will you find the same thing that, that there is leadership of different activities? There but is the an fact that there is leadership at all is my point. Yeah, but you see that the leader is it, that's not authoritarian and it's not authority. But it but, leads to, but it, but it opens the door to that, it, which is a beginning. very important differentiation yeah. that, that has to be made. Authority is a, the most confusing of subjects. There are two forms of authority. One of them is rank authority. I'm the general, you're the grunt, you do as I tell you. Mm -hmm. The other is expert authority. I'm the surgeon, you need surgery, I know how to do it. I'm okay. the plumber, I'm the electrician. It, the, the two concepts become mixed. And that's a very dangerous idea. There but isn't is there, wait, wait a second, isn't there another kind of authority? Go ahead. Force. Just straight no, up that, force. That, 
rank authority depends upon force. So yes. Okay, so rank authority figure fig is might is right. Force is 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 the weapon of, you know, that creates a rank authority, and we accept, you know, that the policeman, in your country, may shoot you. Mm -hmm. uh, in my country, that doesn't happen very often, thankfully. About once every three or four years, not once every day. Um, but the authority the police have is based upon their ability to you know arrest you shackle you so we would call that rank authority that's all that's that rank all figures in a rank authority versus the i have more knowledge therefore Expertise. i know i know more about this field than you do so what i'm telling you is based on a, a knowledge base from which you should believe and you, yeah. and you so give we, over for that reason. If we look at leadership, we have leaders like uh, Duterte is a good example in the Philippines. This is a man who's said, and I quote, my only crime is the extrajudicial killings. Yeah, yeah, he's awful. The only thing I've done wrong is murder people. What's your problem? Or Bolsonaro, who, who in Brazil, just where did these people come from? How on earth did they get into any any sort of authority over others their authority is based upon rank they've been given a rank not expertise not knowledge and not understanding there is an amazing sociologist and you know that i'm not that fond of sociologists generally but there is an amazing guy called ellie sagan or eli sagan he wrote a series of books in which he studied uh, civilization society and how it interacts i read the first one at the birth of tyranny about 40 years ago now and it blew my i was still involved in scientology it blew my mind he looked at the development of society he said there's a period in society which doesn't seem to have been covered which is how primitive tribal forms become kingships how do monarchies form mm -hmm. and so he looked at the country of buganda in africa which um covers the territory of modern Uganda. He looked at Hawaii um, and he, he looked back at the Homeric tales of the fall of Troy to show that there were certain aspects in these societies that were common. Now, Uganda was visited by white people in the 1850s after um, the cure for malaria, the quinine, had finally been stolen and you could go into Africa if you were white without dying from malaria. Mm. And so they met this society. Um, Victorian intellectuals were able to directly view it. In Hawaii, the king of Hawaii had overthrown the religious system, I think, two years before, I think it was Cook who first went there, whoever first got there. And so they were, there were no secrets anymore. We have the word taboo. From, from that culture, a spot of ground which you will be killed if you stand on. That's mm. what it means. So, so watch out for those little spots around there. Um, there are a lot of them around the perimeter at Gilman Hot Springs, I'm told. Um, so they were able to look at, and he found that in looking at these cultures that there were certain commonplaces. One of them was that there'd be a warrior caste who were homosexual. He found this, it, it's in the, um, Trojan Wars, it's in Buganda and in Hawaii. And he was just really quite fascinated that there seemed to be this transition point in the society where you'd have these tough guys. If you look, of course, at, at Hitler, 
he came to power because of a man called Rome, who led the brown shirts, who of course was a homosexual and had a group of homosexuals around. So it, it's not to say make any comment about homosexuality or about anything. He just found these curious similarities. And he looked at different societies. And he I, found, I'm sorry, I have to clarify. I, I, I'm, I'm truly not understanding exactly what the point was with the homosexuality. So I just want to be clear about it. What was the common denominator there? He was saying that as societies came into the early form of kingship, mm -hmm. where you have a, a nation being built rather than a tribe, that it appeared in the societies that he looked at, and he didn't know why, and I've no idea why, that there was an elite class of warriors who were homosexual. Oh, okay. So the, okay, so the warrior class were themselves homosexuals. Yeah. Huh. And I mean, we, we looked at classical Greece and we know that, um, you know, basically, if you look at the symposium by Plato, where Socrates suggests they've been talking about love, the symposium is about love, and they've been talking about love. And, and Socrates at one point late at night says, and you can also love a woman, and they all laugh at him. Huh. The great intellectuals of, you know, Plato, Aristophanes was there, the playwright. Because what a funny idea. No, love is something you have towards a 12 year old boy. Love is platonic, it's something. So different societies have taken a different perception. Okay. That attitude is still held by the warrior elite in Afghanistan. And it's one of the things that uh, when they were put back into power, they started having dancing boys again. So, you know, there are odd things going on in society. Wow, never this heard is, of any of that. That's fascinating. Yeah, and it and it's a it's a rotten tangent because it takes us away. But but it was just to say that but he just, found yeah. some complexes. But what he saw was that there was a development which starts with some thug chieftain who wants to have power over other tribes, and that he. That's why he calls his book at the birth of tyranny, because he believes all humans, almost all human societies derive from this process of thuggery. What my is, point is, that's a natural process. Yeah, his point is that he found exceptions. And why? And, and it actually circles all the way back to the question I asked you that got us onto this in the first place, which, or, which was, what were the causative agents? of those groups that you described that do not fall, do not organically, I guess you could say, follow this model, because this is the model of tyranny and authoritarianism, but it also seems to me to be, statistically speaking, the vast majority of people fall into this model and we have these pockets of exception. And I go, great, okay, why? What is it about those pockets of exception that make them exceptional. I think the first thing you suggested in, in, in talking about the Indus uh, Valley civilization would be scale. Mm -hmm. the, that one breaks those rules because it seems to have been quite large scale. When you look to the Barca and the San, you're probably coming towards the Dunbar number. Okay. You know that when you get 150 people, you get more than that. They don't know each other anymore. That's right. That's, so, I think that's where libertarianism breaks down too. Hmm. Not to go on a big tangent about that, but that's, I, I think it's a small group system. Hmm. You know, yeah. I, I, I the, think they lose the plot when they try to apply it to a nation like the United States. And you just go, what are you crazy? But in a small group, frontier territory, 
uncivilized territory where there's no central government, there's no central authority, there's no post office, that's when libertarianism is like wonderful, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and I think so. That's the first part of it that, that, that it can happen. It is possible. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is, is this word nature and natural. And mm -hmm. it's natural. And we both know Yuval Law. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. And he would point us Im immediately towards the contemporary theory of evolution, not the Mendel Dawkins, you're born with your genes and you're stuck with it. Mm -hmm. um, or even the it's a matter of, you know, you're dealt your cards and it's how you play them, which is the slightly more adapted view of that. Mm -hmm. But he would say, well, hang on, genes are not read only. You can mm -hmm. write on them. And yet over millennia now, millennia, we have been writing this code that f enforces or pushes in the direction of the kind of authoritarian hierarchies that we are complaining about and trying to push back against. It, it, the the vast majority of this that... planet's population is it subscribes to that model of leadership and authority. Yeah, but but we've also seen, you know, the transformative periods, you know, the, the first great transformation is where there are too many human beings too close together. That mm -hmm. we now know that if you go back to the first civilizations, which takes us back, Katul uh, Hayuk, uh, to um, the digging in Turkey, now civilizations that existed in 7000 BC. Hmm. Uh, they, so they predate Sumeria by several thousand years. Mm -hmm. And they built things, which is, of course, what the word civilization means, it means city building. That's mm -hmm. all it really means. But they built stuff out of stone. Mm -hmm. We have things like Stonehenge. We have, you know, where people collaborated and it shows that they had enough food to have 10,000 people in the same place, which means it's an agricultural society. Mm -hmm. But what is coming back from this is that these were not warrior societies. These were societies that got together, had a big party, having built some stuff and carved some stuff on it, and then went, went their way. So one of the dangerous ideas that, that grew through the 20th century was Conrad Lorenz's idea of aggression. And it's still being taught. Lorenz was a Nazi, okay, <laughs> during one period of his life. And he believed that human beings are violent and aggressive creatures. When um, Franz de Waal published Peacemaking Among Primates, another book which absolutely blew my mind when I read it, he said there have been this many thousand studies of aggression in human beings. So far, there have been two studies of reconciliation. That was in 1991. Yeah, you brought that up before in earlier episodes we've done, and we're exploring that territory now because this is the key question of, of the episode here is, is are we naturally violent, aggressive, coercive, awful, abusive to each other? It seems by statistics and observation we are, and yet you can easily make the case, because we're so goddamn complicated, 
that you also find whole swaths of people who are pacifists, who who don't want to have anything to do with any of that, who truly are willing to even separate from society, to have their own groups or cult. I mean, hell, you know, this is where cults come from. Let's break off from society. Let's do our own little thing. And we'll manage it just fine without all these stupid rules and regulations and without all these idiots telling us what to do. We're going to do some stuff. Perfectly fine context, perfectly fine, reasonable, rational way to behave. I just, but it just, again, seems to be the exception rather than the rule, you know? And so how do we turn the rule into what is, wow, the exception? I believe, and it's why the 60% is, is so important, I believe that um, Eva Yablonka is, is right, that, that evolutionary development is happening now. It's not something that happened on the savannah. We don't have to, because we have language, and so therefore can determine culture, can change things. Look at the, you know, the, the oppression um, it, it really, you only come, it, it's about the end of the Second World War where people start in the West trying to be friendly to each other. You know, things like, um, you know, the, the um, Studs Terkel, the, the great broadcaster, was standing at a bus stop one day and he said, I heard these two yuppies talking to each other. And one of them was saying, it isn't socialism, a terrible thing. And so I looked at them and said, how many hours do you work in a week? And they said, 40. They said, well, without socialism, you'd still be working 70 hours a week. And the understanding of history that it was only by a mass labor movement that that happened. But it's also fair to say that the, I think they're called the Council of Sinophobes, haters of Chinese people, was also formed within the American Labor Party in the 1880s, leading to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbade Chinese people from entering the US. That leads into a whole discussion as to why drugs were prohibited, which I'm is a discussion I'm quite happy to have for three or four hours some other time. <laughs> yeah, some other time, yeah. But in turning back, having identified for me, political systems through the past have just not identified the problem. The problem is authoritarianism. The problem is um, you know, you talk about the natural behaviors among children. Well, yeah we can grow up and i think the problem in our the fundamental problem in our society is we're not meant to grow up we're meant to be consumers on the one hand we're meant to be recycling all this plastic garbage and on the other hand we're not meant to feel guilty that we're ruining the planet by recycling all this plastic garbage that growing up you know i, I used to believe that enlightenment you know into my 50s from the age of 17 i believed enlightenment was the goal but one would become wise one would, would, would get emotional equanimity you know nothing would phase me and in the end I, I just went no what matters is my relationship with the world with people with my own family most of all yep with my friends who are my adopted family um that's what really matters so that when i'm having a dreadful time they will sympathize with me and look after me feed me chicken soup whatever and when they're having a dreadful time i'll look after them and again i'm really with eric from on this that as you mature as you become an actual adult your responsibility spreads further 
it's not just about how am I going to eat? How are my kids going to eat? How is my tribe going to eat? How is my nation going to eat? It's about how is humanity going to eat? And I, I, for me, this, this came, came sideways because it's something I realized before I left Scientology in my 20s that the only way forward for humanity was compassion. And I didn't see any of that in Scientology. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, it, that my benefit could only be served by everything around, life affirming, everything around benefiting. So if I did nasty, sneaky, horrible, vengeful things, it would come back to me, not because of karma, just because I'd be creating chaos wherever I went. Whereas, you know, I I had the head of intelligence in Scientology in 1993. She turned and started talking to me. And she said that, that she'd got four agents active, one in training, who were in my life. And that she got this problem, which was that Every now and then, she'd been running harassment for 18 months on me. Somebody would come back to say, I can't do this to him anymore. He's such a nice guy. <laughs> and that's, that's all there is, that by growing up, by becoming intelligent, by becoming rational, we realize that what we do has an effect. How we feel, how we express ourselves towards others has an effect. And your situation and my situation is we've both had plenty of people come to us and thank us for having let them see things a different way and you know release themselves from traps and from horrific traumatic experiences so that they could you know live uh, more happily in the world the more it is so i believe that the first thing is to recognize authoritarianism. And the, the second is, is to say, what, what can we do about it? How can I, you know, so you read John Stuart Mill on liberty. You know, that's a very good thing to do about it. Um, I will and, always endorse that. Yeah, <laughs> absolute primary text. Oh, if you haven't read On Liberty by John Stuart Mill, you do not ever talk about free speech or any or basically human rights. I mean this the 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 on liberty is perhaps one of the most important documents ever. I mean I just I just think it's up there. Yeah. And yeah. it it's very short, 100 pages or so. Yep. He's, and it's 160 years ago this man published this this thing. He also he in there he says uh, in our society women are slaves. Yeah. And he is grateful to his own wife True. for having helped him and That's says right. you know you know, she's helped him think through all of this. You know, right. so he, he's very, he's, very much an enlightenment, post enlightenment thinker. Very much. Yeah. You know, and very important. But I think that we can, by recognizing the characteristics of predators, and you know, I've written that list and I've talked about it repeatedly over the last few years. We've just put up our third version of the human predators video because we want to get it as good as we can. And I've just spread it in Russia, you know, or just about to spread it in Russia, which is great. Recognizing that there are people who are mean and charming, mm-hmm. you know, who apologize and don't mean it, who break their promises, who lie, all rather obvious things, and registering that and going, I don't want that person to become president. You know, I don't want that person to become mayor. I don't want them to become sheriff. I don't want them to teach my children. I had two encounters with 
decidedly predatory teachers, both of whom, actually two of my children, have carried the effects of what was done to them, the age, one at the age of eight, the other at the age of nine, by these teachers right through their lives. You know, it, it, there is nothing I can do to undo what was done um, because I wasn't paying close enough attention. When I was paying close enough attention, I frightened the living, I got the one sacked and frightened the living daylights out of the other. But, you know, there are predatory people out there. And the thing is not to round them up and burn them at the stake. Well, that's obviously where the next question is going, because it, because that you're right. And and I don't I can easily subscribe to that trifold model of, you know, the the bad guys, the predators, the enablers and the people who go along with it, you know, or can be made to go along with it. And it seems that we are sandwiched. These adults you speak of, these people who've come to a growth development of realizing that they are part of the world. There is a responsibility they have. They have a responsibility to themselves, to the people around them, that they want to make things better, not worse. You know, these kinds of, of things. It seems like that's not the majority of the population. <laughs> no, but it. I think there's a shifting number. And I think part of that shift is, is, a, is simply economic, that we're now at the point in, in the US where I believe 25% of people are below the poverty line. In this country, 20% of people. The numbers are way too high. But that used to be 70%. That used to be people would, you know, desperately trying to make a living in the 1850s, if you look at that time particularly. That, so before the Industrial Revolution, people were actually, there were probably less poor people. Then the Industrial Revolution happens and you get the ravages of capitalism. You get, you know, people who just really don't care. I'm, I'm reading a um, wonderful novel called The Living by Annie Dillard, where she's talking about conditions in the Northwest, uh, in Washington State, from the 1850s through the 1870s. And she talks about a guy who runs a shoe factory buying a racehorse for $160,000. At the same time, he is paying his workers $1 a day. Right. And right. that disparity, that idea of, you know, in our time, the super rich, for me, anybody who's worth more than $100 million is a criminal. <laughs> I know there's, I know there are a lot of different opinions about that. My wife and I, uh, you know, talk about this often, and I have had uh, personally many changes of attitude about that. It's, it's, uh, I guess it depends a little bit for me on the context, but I, 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 I get the idea. Oh, when Bill Gates boasted about how much money he'd made by funding vaccination, that he'd spent ten million and made twenty-seven. Again, you're a criminal. You know, you are a predatory human being who has used the misery of others to create profit and power. Nobody should have that much power. Nobody should have that much power. You can't call this a democracy where lobbyists, you know, when John Kerry was standing for president, he had a marquee and you had to pay $150,000 to go into the marquee. That's not democracy. That's yeah. plutocracy. I, I agree capital. with you about that. I do agree with you about that. 
So this that whole nature. But I think if by understanding what authoritarians, what predators are, teaching people to be more responsible and and to be more confident, all sorts of simple things. I mean, Ira Chalif's intelligent disobedience is, is wonderful. His courageous followership is mm -hmm. wonderful. Assertiveness training for kids so that kids, you know, or the um, Matthew Lippmann Socrates for six-year-olds, which I've often talked about, where you get kids so they can talk about things, so that their opinion matters. And I think that you can move that 60%. I think the 60% is probably down to about 55% now. Mm. If we can just get it the other side, so it's 60% of people do think and care. My, my um, niece-in-law uh, did a master's degree about 15 years ago, and she works, she's in the executive that runs the local council and makes sure that everything gets done. She's really smart. She's really smart. And she was curious about democracy. And um, I gave her the rather lame title for her thesis, which is how much democracy is enough? Because what she found was she sent out surveys and only about 30% of people filled them in. Mm -hmm. And when you see that people won't vote and one can understand their apathy about that, given mm -hmm. that the system doesn't seem to change. Um, a friend of mine who, who says he doesn't believe in conspiracy theories wrote to me today saying, but of course, we all know the world is actually run by these little cliques. And it's like, well, yes, new scientist actually about five years ago repeated an investigation, financial investigation going all through the world and came to the conclusion there are something like 150 groups that have power in the world, mm -hmm. real power. Mm -hmm. Most of them corporations. Obviously, mm -hmm. the Chinese government has a certain clout as well. Um, most of them banks and corporations, but they're all rivals with one another. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I push back on that bullshit, because I know for a fact, as you just simply laid out, of course, there are conspiracies. Of course, people get together and work in collusion to uh, to enact legislation or make things happen that benefit them and maybe hurt a bunch of other people and they don't really give a shit. Yeah. Yes, that happens every day of the week. But to but the, but you know where I have to uh, get on my soapbox is you know this idea that twelve guys have been running things for centuries through these secret societies and the Illuminati and and it's all a Jewish conspiracy. I mean you know this stuff is just for the birds. It's the stupidest possible interpretation of reality because reality is multifaceted, is complicated, and as you just said. You know, the De Beers are fighting, the Rockefellers are fighting, the Rothschilds are fighting, the Russian oligarchs are fighting, the West Coast elites are fighting the East Coast elites. These people are not all getting together at G6 summits and, you know, <laughs> here's how we're going to take over the world this year. Here's, You know, this isn't how this works, not even remotely. So... This is where I uh, I have to get and, on and my. The reality box. is, you know, <laughs> you put two rabbis in a room, you've got three opinions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like when exactly. Hubbard talked about psychiatric conspiracy. It's like, did he ever actually met any of these exactly. people? Exactly. with each other. Ah, it's the most ridiculous, simple Simon nonsense I've ever heard. You know, but as you say, as as you very you know cogently point out, yeah. There are about 100, 150 groups that are like got that. That's where the consolidation of power has gone. 
And these people don't are not shy about using that power and and throwing it around. And unfortunately, one of the other aspects of this whole big picture that we're talking about right now is the fact that those groups, if we're going to put them along the top of my imaginary hierarchy of power here, those groups utilize propaganda techniques that have been perfected over the last hundred years. And now digital social media is contributing to this, uh, all a social dilemma and other things. You can get all the, you can break the code of that, but you can't see through it in a normal day-to-day activity. You do not have an awareness of how you are being manipulated by advertisement, media, news, etc. It's just the nature of it. It's it, it's deceptive by nature, but that's kind of a controlled thing itself. So again, I, I'm now, you know, here we are, right? Like, okay, well, how do we, what do we do with this? You know, because I, 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 I'm kind of getting on board with what you're talking about with authoritarianism. Hmm. Like, okay, all right, let's, maybe. Let's maybe take the it. next level is we identify a human predator. Let's, for example, look at the banking crash of 2008. Sure. Now, that was precipitated by a small number of hedge fund managers, Lehman Brothers, mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody was trying to sell the idea of Donald Trump to me and saying that, that um, Barack Obama was actually talking with somebody from Goldman Sachs. And I was like, yeah, but Trump's got five of them on his team. <laughs> right. you know, what are you talking about? Exactly. Um, but the guy from Lehman Brothers, and there's a wonderful documentary, I don't remember the name, uh, sadly, where you see him on video telling, it's an in-house video, where he's talking about how he likes to reach in and rip somebody's heart out while he's selling them something. He walked. He is running another hedge fund now. So there, if you want to change the society quickly, when you get a mega criminal who has destroyed a system, you put them in prison. Right. You know, you try them. So the, the big players in this, this idea that, that some guy who's, you know, shoplifted candy bars three times can spend a life in prison. Exactly. You've got to get rid of corrupt, stupid I, laws like that. I'm telling you, this whole concept of white collar crime being a lower tier of criminality, when in fact, white collar crime is the crime that affects tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people at a shot. You know, you're Bernie Madoffs of the world. These guys spend time in club fed, get out, get a podcast, get a book, get a speaking deal. Like, this is how our society is structured badly, destructively so. Now, I've thought about this in terms of, okay, well, you know, there's a lot of factors here. There's a lot of things going on that make it that way. I think maybe you're onto something with the human predators thing in terms of, you know, real seminal, like foundational reasons these systems exist and then perpetuate themselves. Um, but again, how do, we're talking about systemic changes necessary at like really high levels in order to even begin to turn this train or boat in a different direction than the one it's going full speed ahead on right now. Those changes have happened in some cultures that Looking at, um, say, Germany after World War II, when when it adopted when Adenauer adopted the constitution, Germany is a more fair society than 
almost any society that's ever existed. I mean, I still don't particularly want to live there, but I don't speak German, so it would be difficult for me. Mm. Um, you know, having said that, my girlfriend does speak German, so it might be possible. But, but their laws are more sensible. What we have to do is to create, you know, I mean, human capital is based upon two, two ideas, justice and education. Those are the two things you have to have. Now, our education system is not teaching people the right things. And, and it's still stuck in some kind of 19th century model of geography, history, physics, and this. I found my, my son's just finished what would be senior high school in the US. So he has four advanced levels. Three of his topics, biology, psychology, and sociology, were at least 20 years out of date in their information. The right. biology course didn't even have epigenetics in it. Right. So we've right. got this, and every time I complained to teachers, and I did it many times, I was told the same words were used. You've got to jump through the hoops. And the hope is that by the time you get to a doctorate, you'll be able to get an education. And I'm saying, no, no hoop jumping. When my son is taught about Macbeth, if he's going to have to read this dire suicidal play, which has some of the most beautiful language in the world, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps on this petty, pet, you know, all our yesterdays. <laughs> and all that stuff. But how depressing for a 15-year-old. If he's going to have to read this stuff, he should know why it was written. In 1606, November the 5th, the year before, there was an attempt to blow up Parliament. The explosion would have taken out possibly two square miles. That's how much gunpowder they'd managed to stack there. You're talking about the guy Fox plot. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Remember, remember the 5th of November gunpowder treason plot. This had happened just a few months before he wrote this play. The play is about Scottish King being murdered. The only two murders that happen offstage in Shakespeare are in that play. Oh, the prediction by the witches. Oh, well, James I, who was the king, had A, just imprisoned the children's players because he thought they were taking the piss out of him. So Shakespeare's the king's players, so he's a little bit worried. This is the king that wrote the book Demonology about witchcraft. He's really into them. Hubble, bubble, toil and trouble. And Banquo, Macbeth is told you'll be king and Banquo is told your descendants will be king. James I believed himself, James VI of Scotland as he was, believed himself to be the descendant of Banquo. I get into this stuff, and now I'm fascinated by this play that bores the hell out of me because of, you know, how clever Shakespeare is in managing to get a guy who hates plays to come and watch one of his plays and not put him in prison afterwards. Right. If you put any of that in the answers to the exam, you get zero marks. Right. Because it's the robot marker. It's like exactly. you are meant to quote this. I would like to see education happening in education. I'd like to see the work of Sir Kenneth Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, broadly they're bestsellers anyway, but broadly read. Schools that are about, you know, these schools that you hear of, and there are some, where kids go early in the morning. They go at the weekends, they stay in the evening because they're so fascinated by what they're doing. School's not meant to be boring. Exactly. Education is the most fascinating thing that can happen outside of, well, we won't get into that. Um, But we need education fixing. We need to go back and make it exciting and interesting. And we need to deal with the corruption 
in our system by having a judicial system that is fast, effective, and not punitive, not something that hurts people and puts them in a school for criminals for a few years so they learn all the tricks and hate everybody and come out, but that actually does reform and rehabilitate people and keeps the really dangerous ones away from the rest of us. They're simple ideas, but we're, we're just seeing people fiddling at the edges rather than going, mm. yeah, let's take those bankers that, that walked away with their bonuses of tens of millions of dollars. Let's first of all have the money back. Mm -hmm. Let's secondly try them and, exactly. you know, and not allow a legal system like in the US where if you want to do anything, it takes 20 to 25 years. Or conversely, a legal system where if you're the one walking in with the $25 million lawyer, you're walking out of that courtroom scot-free because justice can be bought. And that is not universally true. And Keith Ranieri, for example, just got 120 years and he had no shortage of money. So it's not a universal principle that if you got money, it's a get out of jail free card, but it sure as hell helps. It but sure if you commit an out outrage to the extent that Ranieri had, yeah. there's no way you can get away with it. Exactly. But and as outraged as people were about, about the housing crisis, they also didn't understand what the hell happened for a couple of years. And that's how these guys eluded justice is they got away with it because in the crisis of the moment, they were invisible to most people. Yeah. It took years for Adam McKay and other people to put the big short and other movies and documentaries together and go, what the hell just happened to us? Because yeah. it was a 20 year, 30 year previous earlier beginning to that. The housing crisis didn't all happen in 2007 or eight. It had been building for decades based or on people building. who, you know, what's that? Or not building. Yeah, exactly. Though this bubble was growing, right? And these bubbles the, grow. Nobody was making the buildings. Exactly. But, we could we could also, of course, get into the whole financial shenanigans that go on on this planet too, but that's 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 way important. beyond the point. <laughs> it's important to, to know because it's not broadly known that the boom to bust has happened just about every 20 years Yep. going back into the 18th century yep. and the same thing happens every time you know the um mississippi bubble the south sea bubble the panama canal bubble the suez canal bubble one time after another some i mean the whole currency of france was was lost and the revolution the probable cause of it is that louis the 14th invested in the um louisiana scandal you know, that, that there was nothing there and the French currency came to be based upon the, the um, bonds for this Louisiana mm. business, which didn't exist. And wow. seeing that happen over and over again, and the people who suffer are the, are the regular people. Right. And the people who get away with it shouldn't get away with it. There shouldn't be a statute of limitations, but it is a matter of Naming and shaming, most certainly. I mean, one of the uh, participants in the uh, Wilcom Enron scandal, there was a guillotine in time, and this person had taken their money out two weeks before that guillotine and became the second largest landowner in Colorado. And you go, no, no guillotine. Give us the money back. You know, let's sort this out. But so, and, and part of that is also what's called the Stetson effect, which is um, a member of the Stetson Hat family 
said about racism that, you know, if you feel too frightened to complain when somebody says something racist, at least don't smile. At least don't be approving, you know. And I think there are, you know, simple and fundamental changes in our behavior that, that really could happen. And it could happen overnight if um, every child in the world saw Blink Think Choice Voice, the three and a half minute video that Ira Chalef has made, and it affected 1% of them, the world would change. You know, That's the kind of fundamental thing I'm talking about. And I'm, and I'm glad we came to this point then, because this is the kind of thing that is fundamental to the human experience around the world. I mean, education, for example, you're talking about. And this is, you're talking about something on the order of, of the kind of reform we talk about when we're talking about reforming the police. You yep. know, like a bottom-up redo. I could just just bottom up. I mean, and 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 I went on a whole roll about that on this very show, right? About, um, you know, or on my channel, you could do, you know, it, it's it's not a matter of we're going to make everybody better by injecting a critical thinking class in in second grade or in fifth grade or in sixth grade or at college level or something. That is so not the estimation of effort necessary to meet the problem that we were talking about, right? And, and, I'm, and I'm bringing up very, you know, like core stuff about human beings when I'm talking about, you know, when, we're, when you and I are talking about narcissism and authoritarianism and, and, and uh, instincts or drives amongst human predators in that direction. And the fact that, you know, there is a rather too high percent of our population, any population, any given population, who have these predator type types and we kowtow to them we have given over authority to them so i i so i think i'm starting to kind of get in focus you know this is what you're is this what you're talking about with authoritarianism is that we are giving over to these predators the power and authority that they grab they yeah. go, they are the ones who make a beeline for it you know, your your sheeple, as I hate that word, but I'll just throw it out there for that class of people who just kind of go along with anything. They exist, and they'll go along with these people. So it really does fall to, and it's and this isn't some you know revolutionary talk or matrix speak or something. A small group of people are fight. There's a good chunk of people in this world, millions and millions and millions of us, who who like John and I, like we educate ourselves. We respond to moral, you know, to morals and ethics and reason. And we have this idea that the world can be a better place. And if we can somehow make a few adjustments, maybe we could stop having these predator types you know, just so easily get into positions of power and authority where they can manipulate harmfully other people. I guess the answer really then is more of a sociological answer or a, or a societal answer than it is a psychological answer because we don't yet have a grip on how to change a sociopath. I mean, you've talked about, you've cited a couple of examples of some teaching and some work that can be done early on, but I don't know that you can take a 25, 30-year-old narcissist and make them not that way anymore. I don't know that that's possible as we understand I, these terms right now i think you can if more people recognize them i mean um 
snakes in suits mm. uh it it is a i i think not a particularly well written book uh sadly but but at the core of it is some of the highest level investigation of psychopathic behavior mm. and what's being shown there is is how you know somebody in the human resources department in a corporation can recognize that they're dealing with a bullshit artist right, they're right. dealing with somebody who's dangerous and the the problems are fundamentally ethical that uh you know i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore that it's fundamentally saying th this the degree of corruption that exists is not acceptable and you know when uh, tony blair who I believe was the causal agent of the Iraq war. I don't believe it was George W. Bush. I think it was Blair, Rumsfeld, and of course, Dick Cheney. Yes. But Tony Blair came back a couple of years ago. I believe he made $25 million lecturing at Yale University in the year after he had to resign as prime minister here. And wow. I was among the voices that said he should be tried as a war criminal because he knew that it was not the truth, that the two witnesses that caused the Iraq war were both fabulists. They, you know, they had the, the prime informant in Iraq was the foreign minister. And they didn't listen to him. They listened to two random characters because they wanted a war. Right. What Tony Blair said was, I believed that what I was doing was the right thing. Just like to point out, Tony Blair's a lawyer. If you go into court and you say to the judge, I believed that murdering the old lady was the right thing to do, then it won't wash and it shouldn't wash. No. And so I have very but, but you have to admit that in the PR world, it's a strategy. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we need to understand propaganda better. So, yep. you know, I mean, I have three little things now one is the human predator and how to recognize them the second is the seduction and recruitment techniques that are used by such predators yes and the third is propaganda or fake news and alternative facts that it horrifies me that i can explain these three things to anybody in about 10 minutes 10 minutes each they're not complicated ideas it's really easy to see these people the person who comes up to you and says, oh, wow, you're fantastic. I love you. You know, you're brilliant. You're my best friend. It's like, what are you trying to sell me? Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Anybody that's flattering me, anybody that's schmoozing me, it's that simple. Fake news and propaganda. I went to um, Anthony, the great Anthony Prakarnis, uh, co-author of Age of Propaganda, co-author of Weapons of Fraud, editor of Influence magazine, one of the great psychologists of the age. And uh, I went to him because I wanted to write some about three or four years ago. I wanted to write something about simple description of fake news and propaganda. And I said, um, uh, what about using the Institute for Propaganda Analysis as points from 1938, thinking you'll say, oh, you are so out of date. And, you know, hoping that he'd tell me what I ought to look at. I am a bit sneaky sometimes. And he came back and, and he I think he used the word superb. Mm -hmm. In 1938, it's right there on Wikipedia. It's it, we've I've done a piece on my channel about it recently. Just this simple list of points that are so obvious, and we fall for them. 
right. Every time. Well, I'll tell you the hardest part. I'll tell you from my own experience, the hardest part of the hardest thing to get across to people is not the data, not the raw data of how it's done. It's getting across to them that they, as an individual, are susceptible to it. Because everybody reads this stuff or learns this stuff as though it applies to everybody else, but they're the goddamn exception. Yep. Every single and person, you know, it's taken me a long time to get it down to a simple point. I've been talking about the invisibility barrier for long, many years. Mm. This you know, advertising works on other people, but not on me. Right. And it finally struck me why that would have to be so. If I didn't believe my perception and interpretation of the world, I, I wouldn't be able to function. You're right. So I have to believe it. And confirmation or my side bias, therefore, has to be there. And a, a friend was telling me the other day, and he, he, that, that why was it that if you gave people evidence that what they believed was wrong, they believed it more strongly? And I said, cognitive dissonance. And he said, sorry, what's that? It's like, okay. Yep. Just getting that idea over. And for me, the, the transition came when... I started to enjoy cognitive dissonance. As, you know, when somebody challenged something, hopefully politely, that I was saying, and I, I've seen you do the same thing. You've done it in this conversation where you go, oh, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Right. We enjoy it. That's right. We like having our minds changed. We don't feel frightened that it'll turn us into zombies or, exactly. or anything to actually be sensible about things. That's to right. believe evidence, you know, and, and to change our minds along the way. You know, one almost wonders, as a cult survivor, as, as you are a cult survivor, as we are, in other words, trauma survivors, people who have had the, the stark, undeniable, irrefutable evidence that we were idiots, that we acted like fucking morons for an extended period of time. I still do. Well, know. and and you come, but here's the, that's actually the point, is you come to learn, there's a wisdom, there's a wisdom of, there, there's a, well, one, okay, there's a humility to be gained by an experience like that. And one wonders, I wonder as I sit here right now, if part of this educational process you know, I don't know that you could do this in an ethical manner. I just don't know how to even begin to do this. But how, you know, put somebody through, put everybody through, you know, some kind of process where they're all in. Actually, actually, the, the framework for this actually already exists if we would use it as a teaching moment. And the framework that exists to teach children this are the childhood myths, Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy. They're already built into our society. The thing that we fail is we fail to make it an educational moment when the light bulb clicks on and they go, wait a second, this isn't true. You're lying to me. You're lying to me, right? And then we, if we as parents or we as authority figures or teachers or whatever, educators, then said, yep, I did lie to you. And here's why I lied to you. 
One, I two, hate three. You. Well, it's not I hate you. However, let's acknowledge that Santa Claus is a wonderful control mechanism to keep kids in line around Christmas time and maybe all year if you really stretch it. So, yes, I did. I lied to you. I didn't. I purposefully told you something that was not true in order to control and manipulate your behavior. And if you could communicate that to an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old in a way that they get, that's a life lesson they'll probably never forget. But as it is, we instead walk away with, my parents are liars, society sucks, it's all, you know, why does anybody talk about Santa Claus, Santa Claus and this, et cetera. But, but it persists because it's such a great control mechanism for these kids, you know, and so I, we I, keep I've using it. The, I've got the best of them all, <laughs> and I had to buy it. It was in, in the local pharmacy a couple of years ago. They were selling this thing before Christmas called an elf detector and you you put it you put it on the ceiling in the kids room and tell them it's watching them all the time oh man oh no hubbard talked about that kind of control mechanism in a lecture he said you could flat out he said okay now i this is obviously a tall tale but i just have to relate this because it's so funny is he said there are societies in the past where they just set up a tower in the neighborhoods, there's a tower. There's the tower in the neighborhood with a great big dome on the top of it. And they told everybody in the society, that dome up there, that's reading the thoughts of everybody in this community. It's an it's automatic surveillance system. Huawei tower. That's right. And it's, a, and it's a thought control mechanism, right? Um, sounds far-fetched until you actually start telling people things that aren't true and you find out how susceptible to untruth people all can be and you move it over in scientology to you know when i finally and i wasn't traumatized in scientology <laughs> just like to point that out, i was sure as heck traumatized after it <laughs> right. um, but when i got onto the operating satan superhuman type levels after seven years um i find you know, a complete nonsense and all of that time for seven years, you've been thinking, oh, these people, they can read my mind. That's right. That's exactly right. My godfather, who I you know, grew up around, was on staff with in Santa Barbara, flat out told me. He would just say stuff like, yeah, I had to turn my tele telepather off because I was getting riddled with too many people's thoughts and stuff. Like, this is, what, this, this is the shit people told me when I was growing up. I believe this was an accurate reflection of reality. And I was... Yeah terrified that the OT Scientologists on staff, when I first got there, were reading my damn mind. You know, I was Which convinced that they could. Made, made you have all sorts of perverse, <laughs> filthy thoughts. <laughs> of course it did. And that led us to where we are today. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, I think actually this is really good because this conversation has actually brought me to a place where I'm thinking more in solutions than problems. And I like that way of thinking. That's my preferred way of thinking. And I think you've presented me with some, some responses to some of my queries or ideas or, or you know, premises that has got me thinking. And I like, I, like I said, I love that. Um, but more importantly, I think that these are not exactly practical solutions, but they are necessary ones. And by practical, I mean it's not like you or I can individually go enact this. 
we need to drum up support. We need people to get on the bandwagon with this. And when we're talking about educational reform, we're not talking about changing some textbooks or changing no. a few commas or offering a critical thinking class. That is not what is needed to change this condition. We have a, you know, as we've talked about here in this very wide-ranging conversation, we've had We've got a lot of social factors. We've got a lot of historical factors, cultural factors, and um, then there's our genetics, and we're still figuring those all that stuff out. So rather than say, okay, well, it's all fucked, and it's all horrible, and there's nothing we can do, maybe we should start putting our efforts and energies into these ideas, you know? And it's been a, it's been a struggle for me to try to figure out what direction should I be going in? You know, because once you come to the realization that you're not going to save the world by yourself. <laughs> it's like at least two people. That's right. That's why I'm talking to you. So, um, new terminal universe. That's exactly right. So I think you, I think, you know, that's why we do a podcast is so we can, we can get these ideas out there. And I, something that's come to me recently, and I've had a number of conversations recently with, with, um, one with a countercult activist who who um, actually has done the course that that you're doing, um, and he he just seemed to have you know he's doing what he can, but he just seemed to have come to such a cynical place. He didn't really believe it was going to make that much difference. And then a week later, I talked with a friend who's a psychiatrist um, and who's been tremendously active and is a really positive person. And again, I got this sense of, oh, you can't change anything and nothing can happen. And I really don't think that's true because we don't send four-year-old children up chimneys anymore. True. You know, it's largely true. because we've got gas heating, obviously, but <laughs> um, that, that things have significantly changed in 1914 in this country the suffragette movement made a deal with the government that they would stop protesting and committing terrorist acts let's be honest about this setting fire to things breaking windows what have you um they would you know and i'm not their, their cause was absolutely right you know but their approach was a little terroristic but they made a deal that instead they would hand out white feathers to any man who was not wearing an army uniform. And they were given the vote in you know, after the war, the 30 year old women were allowed to vote. Um, what happened at the beginning of that war was that people queued to go and slaughter people in another country. Mm -hmm. What happened in the last invasion of the Gulf in this country was that 1 million people went out on the streets and said, not in my name. Now, I do know that there were similar demonstrations by America first in the 1930s. So it's not a new idea. But I think there's a, there is a change happening in our mm -hmm. willingness to be prey. You know, yeah. so I don't take the Donald Trump view that you're either a predator or prey. I am all for becoming a non-predator, a helpful person, a compassionate person, and non-prey, and helping the people are preyed upon. So changing, getting rid of the predator-prey aspect of humanity, you know, as, as best we can. 
Exactly. At least, at, at least, <laughs> the interspecies predator-prey relationship that we do to each other. Yeah. You know, if we could just get a little bit more unity and compassion and tolerance for ourselves KFC's as a species. <laughs> yeah. Well. No, I don't eat KFC. That's not true. I'm with Buckethead on that one. You know. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I do like chicken. <laughs> I like chicken. I, I just don't like KFC. And as, as I'm gluten intolerant, I can't eat it anyway. Yeah. So. Well, you know who else doesn't like KFC? I just happened to read this this morning, actually. You know who else doesn't like KFC? Colonel Sanders. Yeah, I can't blame him. Yeah, he actually sold the whole thing uh, and then just was the brand spokesperson, but found himself hating it more and more and more as the years went on because they were corrupting his process, corrupting the entire thing. It was just like McDonald's, the fast food. Let's make well, it. Ro Ronald know. McDonald, an interview now. You know, he, he's really, he never <laughs> eats the stuff yeah, yeah, pretty bad. <laughs> uh, on the, the, I think one of the things to, to bring hope is to say there actually are already hundreds of thousands of people around the world doing positive things that are making a change. Yep. And I'd like to recommend this book. Mm. Uh, he's, he modestly calls himself Ken Robinson on. on yeah, can you read the title and author for the podcast folks who can't see it? Yeah, he's, he is Sir... Ken Robinson. He's mm. been knighted in this country for his services. He's been made a baronet, as we say. And the book is called Creative Schools. He wrote another book called The Elements. In this book, he shows you that hundreds of schools have transformed and that there are kids who are getting a proper education all over the world. And so it's a process. We're not at the beginning of something here. We're just helping to move it along. And, you know, I'd also like to recommend a documentary that is called The Serengeti Rules. Hmm. And as the, it's a beautifully made documentary, the film quality is fantastic. But in the introduction, the guy who wrote the book, The Serengeti Rules, explains that, yes, all of the nature documentaries we see now are doom and gloom. And, you know, it's really terrible. This is a documentary about how they found out about what are called keystone species, which are some of them predators and some of them not, which by reintroducing them, rewilding, they've been able to actually change whole environments. It's ha been happening for several decades now, and it's almost unreported. So I think we need a, a boost to understand that, that the world is not all going to hell. That, right. that there are a lot of people doing great work. Because I think that, that the malaise of, well, what's the point? I might as well go down and buy myself some new clothes from China to keep the slave industry going there. And I might as well, you know, what does it matter? It does matter. Each one of us and what we do and what we believe, it, I think it's one of the things I love about the evolutionary development model which Yuval describes in some detail on my channel, is that it's not a kind of you're now a, a cog in a machine. Everybody's important. Everybody is important. And how every one of us behaves towards other people, it matters because the knock-on effects are unknown. You know, that. so I, it's my nature perhaps, but I seek to be friendly with people, you know? 
Yes, I, think I do. <laughs> Same, man. I get it. Yeah. It Conflict makes me feel is just, better. Oh. You know? It makes me feel better. Yeah. And, and I seek to resolve arguments and I seek to have discussions rather than arguments. And I don't want to boss anybody around or make them feel small, which is, of course, what predators do. I want people, you know, when I leave the room, I want people to feel, you know, a bit more cheerful than they did them when I went in. Unless I'm feeling depressed and then obvious I'll just, you yeah. know. But I, I gen generally, there's an attitude towards life and that attitude does pay back. I was harassed for 16 years by Scientology after I left and it was severe. Um, when Paulette Cooper, when we were at Toronto, said you never get over it that's true mm -hmm. there are things you know when i see a manila envelope i'm still afraid it's going to be a legal writ mm -hmm. when i see the light flashing on my answer phone there's still something in the back of my mind that says it's going to be one of my lawyers calling even though that was 20 years ago right. you know but it does get less and less with time and the positive effect for me, when I came back and started talking again in 2013, having been away since 1996, it was amazing because for the 12 years that I did, nobody said thank you to me. You know, when I was going bankrupt, the 500 people I'd helped through their recovery, not one of them came to help me. So I developed a certain misanthropic view about uh -huh. humanity. You know, when I came back, there was this flood of appreciation that people saying, you know, I read Piece of Blue Sky, it changed my life. It, it did something. And that is, you know, I, I give the same example every time. A woman wrote to me and she said, uh, 15 years ago, you spent an afternoon with me, you probably don't remember me. And I didn't. I didn't, I didn't recognize the name on the letter. That afternoon changed my life. Until then, everything was a mess because of Scientology. Since then, I am in a happy marriage, I have children who are healthy, I have a career, and I put it all down to that one afternoon. Now, she, she made the change, I was just a catalyst for that change. But to know that that has happened, to know that you've had a positive effect for 15 years on somebody's life, everything becomes worthwhile. Yeah. And you know, psychologically, it, it's something you know that's a tremendous boost and so and i would recommend it you know pleasure and thrills and all of that we need that too we do even if it's kfc which i think is a bit of a naughty pleasure um, <laughs> but happiness is something that that comes out of the sense that you've contributed something that's right. and that something good has happened as a consequence of what you've done it doesn't come from getting your revenge on people <laughs> No, I've never met anybody who'd become happy by being horrible to other people. You know? That's right. Oh, you know, that person may be out there, and if they'd like to write something in the comments section. Yeah, exactly. We'll probably hear from them. Well, that's yeah, I couldn't agree more. So on that note, I think we're I think we're at a good place to wrap up here for this week. This has been, like I said, a very far ranging conversation, fascinating one, and. Um, and didn't end up where I thought it might go, but that's always that's pretty par for the course for us, but in a good way. It's always it's always seems to be in a pretty good way. Yeah, every conversation we've had has had moments of disagreement and mm -hmm. dispute, which I think is very healthy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when each of us has been wrong. So it's mostly you, obviously. Of course, obviously. <laughs> now, there are times when each of us has been wrong and when each of us has put the other right. But at the end of every conversation that we've had, and this is 16 or 17 now, it's somewhere along there, we've come to a point of resolution where we both feel cheerful about having talked with each other. (laughs) What could be better than that? Exactly. Exactly. And I hope, folks, that you guys out there are following along the same way. I really do. I hope that this has given you some degree of hope because it did me. And I hope that this has given you some degree of like, oh, here's something I could put some effort into. Here's something I could contribute some money to. Here's something I could think about more and maybe communicate to other people, friends, family. You know, it's not just about sending money or it's not just about, you know, thumbs up and likes. It's about taking these ideas, making them your own, contributing to them, spreading them, getting them out there. That's influence. That's how we change the world, I guess you could say. And I am not one for preaching about mantras of saving the world or changing the world. But in this case, you know, this is a topic that we've got to deal with. And now that we're starting to understand it, coercive control, authoritarianism, high control groups, extremism, radicalization, there's so many words we could throw at this. But they all come down to these concepts of people being awful to other people on purpose and, and doing it for extended periods of time. We don't have to put up with it. We can recognize it now, and we can start making some changes in that direction. And all of us have to get on board with that to do it. So that's my that's my soapbox pitch at the end of this thing. And uh, thank you very much for watching, everybody. John? Let me just add one, one thing. When I was a teenager, I, I learned the word amelioration, hmm. which I thought was a lovely word. And which means to make something better. So the idea of making the world perfect has never really struck me. Yeah. But if if it's just a, you know, if I can spread a little happiness as I walk by, (laughs) if we can, it's ameliorating things, it's making them better. And I'm going to put in a plug here that anybody that has not gone to the Lyrical Wax, that's W-H-A-C-K-S YouTube channel, is a very naughty person. You should go there straight away and subscribe because uh, my partner and I have put together this this new channel oh. and lyrical wax. And we have a we have a task. We you know it, it's one of those kind of Lord of the Rings adventures. You know that you can be involved with. And the task is this: Faber and Faber, who are the most famous poetry publishers in the world, have eighty six subscribers on their podcast. We so far today have 34 and we are determined to beat them. So <laughs> please, please come and have a look and subscribe. Link below, Link below yeah. guys. Check out the description section of show notes at sensiblyspeaking.com. I will post that uh, channel there for you. Great. And they're blatant advertising. My yes, absolutely. Propaganda. How dare you? How, how dare you engage in that, that manipulative advertising Giving stuff away for free, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> yes, exactly. The first 30 listeners will get a <laughs> million dollars each. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> he promised it. You heard yeah, him. Yeah, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> All right, folks. Okay. Great pleasure. I'm yes. John Atak. 
this is Chris Shelton and and thankfully I'm still John Atak and he's still Chris Shelton <laughs> even after all of that intermingling of ideas exactly. and uh, it's been great Chris thanks so much thanks John all right guys bye-bye